We all know kids love their snacks, but finding healthy snacks with real food ingredients that won't break the bank isn't always easy. That's why I love Thrive Market. Thrive Market is an online membership-based market that makes healthy living easy and affordable. Everything is organic and non-GMO, and members save an average of $32 on every order. My kids love the Lara bars, seaweed snacks, and the skinny dip dark chocolate almonds. But Thrive Market is so much more than snacks. They also have organic and essential groceries, safe supplements, non-toxic home products, and clean beauty products, plus ethical meat, sustainable seafood, clean wine, and more. If you join today, you can get 25% off your first order and a free gift. All you have to do is go to thrivemarket.com slash food issues, where you can sign up and see my favorite items. And for every paid membership, they give a free membership to a family in need. So sign up today at thrivemarket.com slash food issues. I'm always trying to get more fruits and vegetables and real foods in my kids' diets. But between school, work, sports, and everything else we have going on, I don't have a lot of time. I need simple, easy kitchen appliances that can help me save time. And the one that I can't do without is the Vitamix. When I received it as a Christmas present a few years ago, I admit I was skeptical because I already had a blender. But the first time I used it, I was hooked. Unlike other blenders, the Vitamix blends everything up into a super smooth consistency, much like a juicer would, except you get all the nutritious fiber that regular juicers leave behind. And what I love most about the Vitamix is that it isn't just for smoothies. Every Vitamix has an entire range of textures to choose from, so you can use it to make dips and spreads, nut and seed butters, hummus and guacamole, muffins, pizza dough, plant-based milk, and frozen treats. Vitamix has been around for 70 years and all of their blenders are powerful, durable, and built to last. And they come with a full warranty. To get free shipping off any Vitamix purchase over $50, just go to my website, julierevelant.com slash shop and click on Vitamix. This is Food Issues. In every episode, we bring you experts to tackle the real challenges around feeding kids and offer practical insight to help organizations, communities, and parents create change. I'm your host, Julie Revelon. There's so much information and advice out there about nutrition and feeding kids, and although most of us know what our kids should be eating, it's not always easy to put it into practice. So it's really important that parents lead by example, as in parents are responsible for what's going to be served, where it's going to be served, and when. So you can make those choices and feel good about the choices. That's Erin Polanski-Wade, a nationally recognized registered dietitian, certified diabetes educator, and speaker who has appeared on TV shows like The Dr. Oz Show and The Doctors. We'll talk about how to get your kids to eat more variety, how to introduce new foods, and the best healthy eating habits for kids. Hi, Erin. Thank you so much for coming on the Food Issues podcast. Hey, Julia, I'm so excited to be here and thank you for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. So I've actually been following you for many years um, because of your nutrition work and I'm a health journalist. So I'm always, you know, kind of 
following um, RDNs, but I also know that you do uh, master the media course. And I always found that really interesting. I think it's a really important um, work that you do for um, your fellow colleagues. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's really like a passion of mine. And um, Amy Gorin does it alongside of me because I've worked with the media for so long as a nutrition expert and really just trying to help other nutrition experts kind of pave the path on how to get started with the media and how to share those credible nutrition messages as much as possible. So let's start with your story. I'd love to hear your background and why and when you became an RDN. And also, how do you work with people today? Yeah, sure. So it's actually a little bit of a funny story. I kind of um, fell into being a dietitian almost on accident. So I was um, a competitive gymnast growing up. And one of my goals was really to go on and be a gymnastics coach. So I went to college, I went to Virginia Tech, Um, my original major was in physical education. And I really loved it. But I didn't necessarily want to go into physical education in schools, which was more what the the degree was tailored towards. But luckily during um, my freshman year, we had a lot of nutrition courses and I just fell in love with the whole idea of nutrition, especially for athletes. So I went to my advisor and I was like, I don't know what it's called, but I want to be somebody that talks to people about nutrition. And so, uh, (laughs) yeah, so he's like, well, that's called a dietitian. And luckily for me, because I was at a college that offered that career path and uh, I was able to transition into becoming, um, you know, going to an undergraduate degree in nutrition and then eventually becoming a registered dietitian. So uh, I was really glad I did. And I was glad I was at a school where I was able to make that transition really easily. But um, and then even as a dietitian, I had originally thought I wanted to work with athletes because that's what my passion was. And that's what I wanted to go into. And during my dietetic internship, I did a rotation in outpatient diabetes education. And it just blew my mind how we could recommend like really small, simplistic changes to people. And a week later, their energy was improved, their blood sugar was improved, like their whole overall well-being was improved. And that was just so exciting to me. And that's really where I decided that from that day forward, I really wanted to work with people with diabetes and be an an outpatient or private practice dietitian and help people really understand how those little simple changes can make a big impact. That's awesome. So let's talk a little bit more about picky eating today. Um, I was kind of searching through your site and I had read your story and I read that you, like me, were a picky eater as a kid. So any stories that, you know, maybe your parents told you about, um, you know, what food and mealtimes were like in your family growing up? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I was I was the worst. I really was. And I, I mean, I'm way better today, but I can totally relate even with my kids because they're picky too. Um, when I was younger, I remember specifically, like we always had vegetables with the meal and my mom would always give like a potato too. And um, I would <laughs> I would eat the middle of the potato because I didn't mind the potato. And then I would shove all the other vegetables inside the potato and I would fold the potato back up. So it looked like I ate all my vegetables, but the only thing I didn't eat was the potato. And my mom was okay with that because she really wanted me to eat like the other vegetables, not so much the potato because she knew I, I liked it. So I would shove like the broccoli, the carrots, everything in there. And they always thought I ate my vegetables. And instead, we didn't have a dog or anything because that would have been perfect. But in my potato. That is so funny. That's genius, right? I thought so. You know, I thought I was pretty smart for a five-year-old, but yeah. Yeah. So they never really struggled. Otherwise they just thought, Hey, she's eating and we're good. Yeah, I mean, I do specifically remember one time like being at the dinner table forever because I was very stubborn and they had carrots and I did not want to eat a carrot. So I had to sit there until I would at least try one. And I still remember like taking a slice of carrot, like you would take a pill and like just chugging it back with milk so I wouldn't taste it. 
<laughs> oh my so gosh. Be yeah, it, this is a very strong memory. And now I like carrots, but uh-huh. I, you know. It's <laughs> you know? so funny. So you did mention your kids and you have three kids. Is that right? Mm-hmm. That's yeah. right. And so there you said that they're picky. So what are mealtimes like in your house? <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, they all have different levels of pickiness. I would say my four-year-old is like the extreme version. The oldest one, now that he's seven, is much more willing to try foods. Um, so mealtimes are interesting. <laughs> we all, you know, I try to make sure we all sit down for the meal. We all have the food in front of us. Um, we try to not make it pressureful, but like with my four-year-old, he would just live on yogurt if he could. So we try to have a food at mealtime that he enjoys, but then also whatever the vegetable is or the fruit is or whatever else it is that we have at the meal, it's always on his plate. Um, he's come a long way that he doesn't scream when it's on his plate anymore. And like, he allows it to sit there. Sometimes he eats it, but you know, we're, it's a work in progress with him, but that's really, (laughs) that's where we're at right now is the meals are there. Um, I would say, you know, one out of three kids typically eats whatever's there. It can vary which child that is each day, but it's a little stressful, but it is, you know, it's kind of the territory and at least I can see the progress. So I feel like we're making some strides there (laughs) with the business. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so many of us deal with picky eating kids and you've written that it's important for parents to kind of manage their expectations when it comes to feeding their kids. And so um, do you, would you say that most parents struggle and and why is it important that they kind of back off and and feel like a little less stressed about mealtimes? Oh, totally. I mean, you know, with everything with our kids, we all have expectations and they don't always pan out. Like we'd love our kids to listen and do exactly what we say. And it's just, they have, they're independent little people. So mealtime is no different. I think um, one of the the most important things is if you make mealtime stressful, you know, think of how you would feel as an adult. If you had a plate of food in front of you, you didn't like, and you had somebody hovering over you telling you how to take a bite every few seconds that, well, you don't even want to, like, even if you were thinking about it at that point, you've been turned off and you feel pressured and you just don't want to anymore. So it's really important that parents lead by example, as in parents are responsible for what's going to be served, where it's going to be served and when. So you can make those choices and feel good about the choices, but you have to let your child determine how much, if they're going to eat any at all, really. And just that exposure, eating it, having it there, having the family meal, seeing that mom and dad are eating those foods, you know, eventually they will become more receptive to those foods. But if you make it a pressure-filled situation or you're a short order cook and you're making all these different meals, you know, it's adding to your stress level. And when everybody's stressed at mealtime, it tends to be most likely you're going to see even more pickiness versus the opposite. Right. It's like anything else. You push, they push back, right? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. The more you want it, the more they're not going to make it happen. (laughs) That's right. That's right. So let's dive right into the best healthy eating habits for kids. And so we all know the old adage, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. But, you know, studies show that only about one third of kids eat breakfast every day and 17% never eat breakfast. Um, so talk to me about breakfast and is it really important? And, and if so, why? And how can we make it easier for ourselves? Yeah, it's definitely important. So one of the things when you think about breakfast is when you're waking up, you've been fasting all night overnight, you haven't eaten anything, you wake up. And even if you don't really feel hungry, if you don't eat something at breakfast, typically later in the day, you start to feel a little more ravenous. So from a child's perspective, if they're very hungry, like mid-morning snack time, they're reaching for whatever's around, they're grabbing snacks on the run, there's no real structure to mealtime. Generally, they're not going to be eating the most nutrient-rich foods. Um, But the other thing, too, is, and we've seen this even in research, is that breakfast, especially a balanced breakfast, it sets the stage for energy and for concentration and memory and learning. So when you think about small children during the day, and especially school-age children, 
that breakfast is really setting them up to feel at their best throughout the day and even to be able to better learn and concentrate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I often see like friends, kids, and they wake up and they don't really care about eating, but my kids just, that's the first thing they think of just like I do, but (laughs) it's just so funny. It's like, what's for breakfast? What did you make for breakfast? It's really like a big deal in our house. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, it's funny too. Like, I think a lot of it is, it's probably like that routine and the habit. Cause you're probably like every morning you have a breakfast ready and they get in the habit of it. And I do the same thing. It's like pretty standard. We get up, we, you know, get our clothes on, we brush our teeth, we eat breakfast type of a thing. Um, so it's, it's becomes that expectation that they're waiting for breakfast. But yeah, if you get into the habit and we've had this happen too, you have a busy week and we're eating on the run. It's like all of a sudden they don't care about breakfast anymore. Cause it just, it's not in their routine anymore. Yeah. That's a great point. So when you're trying to get kids to eat more variety and try new foods, that's always a struggle for parents. Why is it important to offer only one new food at a time? Yeah, so uh, the biggest thing, and this isn't a hard and fact rule, but in general, if you can offer one new food at a time, it's less overwhelming. So if on your child's plate is two foods that they tend to enjoy, or even if they don't love, they feel comfortable with, and there's one new food, it feels much less overwhelming than if the plate is just filled with all these new foods that they're unfamiliar with. Even if they potentially like the taste of them, it seems very overwhelming because it's just unfamiliar. So your best strategy when you're introducing new foods is to offer a very small portion of that new food along with more familiar foods and foods you know your child's more likely to um, better receive. And that is going to make that new food less scary and more likely that they'll indulge in it. And when you say small portions, are we talking like a few peas, you know, a few broccoli florets, something like that? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I would start because you can always give more, right? If your child, so for instance, my, um, my pickiest child this morning for breakfast, we had egg muffins and raspberries and he's not, although he used to eat raspberries, he's not sold on them anymore. So he had like two raspberries on his plate. Now it's a very small portion of raspberries, but I know if I put a bunch, he would have felt very like stressed out about all those raspberries and he wouldn't have wanted to come near his plate at all. When there was just two there, he was fine with it and he accepted them and then eventually he ate them. So I would start really small when it's a new food, especially if your child is a little bit pickier or a little bit more hesitant. And if they enjoy it, you can always offer a second serving of it, but that way it's not so overwhelming. Yeah, that's great advice. And and then how often should you serve that new food? Should you do it five days in a row or should you kind of switch it up every day? Yeah. So I like to think about it, you know, think about how you would like a new food served to you that you weren't really a big fan of. So for instance, my husband does not care for broccoli. It's my favorite vegetable, but he's not a big fan. So if I tried to give him broccoli five meals in a row, I think he would just leave. (laughs) My kids would do the same thing. So you don't want to have, you know, a month go by before they see that food again, but I wouldn't do it where every day, because even if it's a food you like, if you eat the same thing every day, you get sick of it. So I would try to maybe once a week or once every three or four days, but I wouldn't do it to where it's overwhelming because then even if they were considering eating it, they might just get turned off because they see it so often. Right, right. So stay consistent, but not overwhelming is the message there. Um, Great, great. So, you know, exposures, repeated exposure is really important when you're trying to get kids to eat new foods, try new foods, like new foods. So what does the research show about the, the right amount of exposures? for a kid to be willing to to try even try it. 
Yeah. And this is such a tough topic because I know like even the parents I work with in my practice, it's, the, you know, they feel like, well, I offer my kid a carrot like twice and they won't eat it. I'm like, well, I would love for every child to eat a carrot after they see it once or twice. But the research shows us it could take as many as 20 exposures or more before a child is willing to try a food. And we have to be realistic with what that means too when they're willing to accept and try that food. Acceptance could be as small as they pick it up and they sniff it or they lick it with their tongue or they put it in their mouth, but they don't actually chew it and swallow it. So this whole idea of acceptance is pretty broad. You will have some children after one or two exposures, they love the food and they start eating it. But others, it could be as many as 20 times before they'll even touch that food. So there is this big range. And that's where as parents, it's really best to just offer those nutritious foods, you know, do it on a regular schedule. But relax with the rest and trust your child will eventually come around with this exposure because you are going to have, and when you have multiple kids, you probably know this, but they all have different personalities. And so you just have to kind of be consistent in that offering and let them decide when they're ready to really try those foods. Okay. That's really great advice. So I thought that, you know, your kid meaning had to accept it, had to enjoy it and like it, but I love all the different variations there that you mentioned. That's great. Yeah, I mean, it would be ideal if they just loved it. But yeah, it's still yeah. that whole term acceptance is more of just they're willing to actually touch the food and accept it on their plate, really. Yeah. And do you find that a lot of parents, like you said, you mentioned that mom who who tried twice, do you find a lot of parents will try maybe five times and then say, I gave up, they didn't like it, they're a picky eater? Definitely. And, you know, sometimes we we put this into our heads is like, oh, our child's picky because after three or four exposures, they didn't accept that new food. And this is pretty normal behavior for children. So part of what happens is when we decide like, oh, well, they only ever eat chicken nuggets. And every time I offer this or this, they don't touch it. They become picky because we stop offering those foods. But if you just continue to, on a regular basis, have those foods, and that's, you know, family meals are really important because they can be out, everybody's enjoying those foods, and they're seeing, they're seeing that role modeling of you trying new foods and eating new foods, eventually, and it can take months, it could take a year, eventually they start to accept a wider variety of foods. Yeah, yeah. Um, We had Marina Chaparro on the podcast, and she said that her daughter, I think it took well over a year or maybe it was more than a few years and she just kept on you know offering or they they would cook together mushrooms and her child just refused 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 and then one day all of a sudden she just ate it and so I, I felt like wow that's a long haul but so encouraging it is and it's you know it's so funny because you'll also have these phases where your child seems to really love a food and they'll eat it and eat it and then all of a sudden they they don't like it anymore and it's the same thing it's just you know don't give up just like you or I sometimes get sick of a certain food and don't want to have it for a few months and then we like it again it's just kind of continuing to cycle it into your meals and i always if i put it in perspective of how i feel too I, it kind of helps because we always think of our, our kids as like we want them to be perfect and do exactly as we want but none of us eat exactly the same thing every day and sometimes we're in the mood for one food and not another so they're very similar that way and don't let that one time that they reject something kind of steer you in the wrong direction yeah yep so what about this is a common challenge for parents their kids just flat out refuse to eat at all or just, you know, snub the food totally. So what do you do? How do you handle it? Yeah. So the the best advice I've ever read and the research supports this is don't um, 
just don't react, okay? Whether or not they do it. So sometimes we react in a positive way. Like let's say your child has never eaten an apple slice before and all of a sudden out of the blue, they decide to eat an apple slice. If you get all excited about that and make a big deal about that, even though that seems like positive reinforcement, it's actually a form of pressure. So it's the same when your child chews up a food and spits it out or refuses a food or pushes the dish away. The best thing you can do is just not react one way or the other. Like mealtime is mealtime. Here's the foods. You eat them. You don't eat them. That's fine. You know, just don't add any necessary pressure. Don't have big reactions, negative or positive. And the more neutral you can keep that mealtime, the more all foods seem kind of safe to your child because one isn't, you're not rewarding them for eating a vegetable and yelling at them for eating something with added sugar. You know, all the foods just seem to get the same response. And then they tend to be less pressured at mealtime and more willing to try more new foods. That's really great advice. I've never heard that before. I love that. Just kind of be neutral to any food they either eat or don't eat. That's awesome. And it is hard. I mean, I get real like if my child like picked up kale, I'd be like, whoa, like I'm so excited <laughs> internally, but I try not to react. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. Because then you you kind of label foods and they have different values, right? And mm-hmm. we don't want that. Yeah. So choices, really important. Um, I find that when my kids are given a choice between two vegetables, for example, you know, either way, they're going to make a healthy choice. But we know research shows that this is important. So can you talk about why it's so important and then some easy ways that parents can make it happen? Definitely. So your children, no matter how young they are, they want to be independent. And so the more that we take that independence away, the more they push back. So you don't have to give the choice of, you know, what do you want for dinner tonight and give your child this like unlimited options because that's overwhelming. It's overwhelming to an adult, but it's also overwhelming to a child. But if you give them a choice between two or three items, they feel independent because now they've made the choice. So one of the things you could do is let's say, you know, at dinner time you have three vegetables in the house. You could say, okay, tonight we have, we have carrots, we have broccoli, we have green beans. Which ones do you want for dinner? And your child can select which one they want. And now they feel good because they were involved in the process. They feel like they got to make a choice and that makes them more willing to try that food versus it being pushed on them. So, you know, I think there's this level of independence, but you also want to watch that you don't give too much independence where then, you know, too many choices can be just as overwhelming as no choice at all. So the option of maybe two to three choices at most, depending on your child's age, is really helpful. And then it tends to make them a little bit more willing to try those foods. Yeah. You know, and we we also see on Instagram all the time, there's, there was that trend, I'd say for several months of, of other, you know, bloggers posting um, pictures of like muffin tins with different kinds of fruits and vegetables. And it's like, well, that, that, that's definitely effective, but I mean, who has time for that, right? They're they're taking pictures because they're trying to market their business. <laughs> um, but I think that that can probably be done on an, on an easier scale, like you said, like two or three vegetables at dinner. You just put out leftovers or raw cut up vegetables, things like that. And and it's a great way to to, you know, offer that variety and let them have feel empowered to make choices for sure. Exactly. And like that muffin tin strategy, because I'll use that too with my kids. And I agree, like sometimes it looks way too, I mean, you know, these boards and all this stuff is like way too involved for for most people. But one of the things with the muffin tins is um, at dinner time, it's actually a great way if you want to put like a couple handfuls of carrots in one or a couple pieces of blueberries in one, don't be afraid to put 
to the same option, multiple muffin tins. But one of the things that's nice is it just, um, it looks more kid-friendly. Like they can grab what they want. And I tend to, in one spot, put like chocolate chips or something a little bit more indulgent. And it's fine if they choose that option too. But it does take away that whole idea of like the vegetable feels more scary or unfamiliar because it's, again, it's next to some of those more familiar foods. Certainly not something I would do all the time or expect somebody to do. Um, but it is one of those things that if once in a while, it just makes meal prep easier for you because you can just throw a handful of raw stuff in there. You know, that's another strategy too. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm all about the fun, like kitchenware type stuff. We <laughs> um, a, a few weeks ago, I, I had made lentils and for some reason, I guess red lentils, they kind of like fall apart when you cook them. I don't know why. <laughs> Um, but I was going to make lentil patties and it fell apart. And so I just pureed the lentils and made soup. And we usually have regular lentils. So my kids were initially, you know, digging their heels in. And I had these little um, China cups from a from a tea set, like a China tea set. And I put them, I, I poured it in this little cup and I handed it to them like, no, it's so good. You got to try it. It's delicious. And I had some paprika in it. And they loved it because I think, you know, not only my encouragement, but I think it was in these little fun cups. So it was felt like fancy to them. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a really great way to get kids excited and, and maybe more willing to try new foods. Oh, totally. And I love that. And, you know, that's the stuff. It's like easy enough because you could pop it in the dishwasher after. I bought um, a bunch of these little like silicone molds and you could bake with them if you want because silicone can be heated. But they're ones are shaped like a fish and one's just colorful little boxes. And all I do is I'm serving them the same portion I would normally at dinner, but I stick it in these little silicone things that I'm going to pop in the dishwasher. And it just adds more color. And like you said, it makes the plate more fun. So at least they're like curious. They want to come over and see it, whether or not they eat out of it. Yeah. But at least they're, they're more willing to look at it and try it because it does look more fun. That sounds fun. So we're going to head to a break right now. And when we get back, we're going to talk about one of my favorite subjects. If you want mealtimes to be easier and less stressful, getting your kids in the kitchen to cook is one of the best things you can do. I know it's really encouraged my kids to eat their vegetables and try new foods, and it's given them a ton of confidence in the kitchen. But if you don't know how to cook or you don't like to cook, the Kids Cook Real Food eCourse is for you. This course was created by a mom of four and former elementary school teacher, and it's designed to build connection, confidence, and creativity in the kitchen. With Kids Cook Real Food, you'll get more than 30 basic cooking skills, 45 videos, including a ton of bonuses, principal supply and grocery shopping lists, and kid-friendly recipes like Tex-Mex white bean dip and homemade pizza. The course is designed for all kids ages two to teen and has three different skill levels. Your kids will learn how to crack eggs, cook rice, make a salad, and safely use knives, the oven, and appliances. If your kids have food allergies or dietary restrictions, no problem because the course has a ton of substitutions. My kids and I have taken the course and it was so easy to follow along that my kids made an entire recipe on their own. More than 18,000 families have taken the course and the Wall Street Journal named it the number one cooking class for kids. If you're trying to cut down on processed foods and get your kids to eat more real whole foods, and become healthy, adventurous eaters, then the Kids Cook Real Food eCourse is for you. You can sign up for the course by going to kidscookrealfood.com slash food issues 
And because you're a listener, you'll get a free lesson. Again, go to kidscookrealfood.com slash food issues and sign up. So in our last segment, we were talking all about giving kids choices and making food fun. And so let's move on to, like I said, one of my favorite topics, and that's cooking with kids, because this is a really great healthy eating habit. So what does research show about the benefits of cooking with your kids? So when we look at the research of cooking with our kids, the most important thing to take away from it is it counts as exposure. And so we talked before about it could take as many as 20 or more exposures for a child to accept a food. So one of the best things you can do is including them in the cooking process. And this could be everything from going to the store or the farmer's market with you to pick out the food to washing it and prepping it and depending on the child's age, even cutting it, um, baking it, cooking it. All of those count as exposure. So you could easily get, you know, three, four exposures to a food just through the preparation of the food. And now your child is more comfortable in the kitchen. They're more familiar with that food and they're much more accepting of it. Yeah. And would you say that it makes them more adventurous eaters because they have that control? Generally, yes. And I always think it's really fun um, when you can take your child with you to like the grocery store or the farmer's market because they see all the colors and the fruits and vegetables. And many times they find things that you wouldn't have thought of and they just are excited about it. Like my son, the one I was telling about the four-year-old who's really picky, we found a pepper that he was convinced looked like it had a face on it. And he was (laughs) convinced it was talking to him. So I'm like, okay, we're buying this messed up pepper. And so because he, you know, was convinced it had a cute little face on it, we brought this pepper home and he was excited to eat the pepper, which he hadn't been before. So, you know, just going through the aisle and, you know, deciding like that was his pepper out of all the peppers and he had that independence to be able to buy it, um, that made the difference. So I do think, you know, giving them that chance to come with you and even that independence to help select, you know, whether it's an item to go into a salad or a soup recipe or whatnot, that makes them more part of the process and definitely gets them to be a bit more adventurous. That is so cute. Yeah. I love, I love farmer's markets because there's so many types of vegetables that you don't typically see in the grocery store. And then you can go with your kid and and then try to figure out how do I make it? What, you know, what is like the right way to cook (laughs) it and things like that. Um, Yeah. yeah, that's great. So, you know, I think when people think about cooking with kids, they think it's like this dreadful activity. And, and to be honest, I mean, there are times I've cooked with my kids and I'm like, why did I do this? This was really stressful and hectic and they have a million questions and they're talking to me at the same time. And it's like, why did I decide to do this today? Um, but I found kind of an easier way to do it, you know, when we have more time, maybe on the weekends and, and now they're a little bit older, they're, they're 10 and eight. So they can actually follow a recipe on their own. And so I'm trying to foster that with them. But I have to tell you, it's just really one of the best ways that I've gotten them to eat healthy and get excited. And my little one, she, I mean, I really think she wants to be a cook when she's older. She absolutely loves cooking. Yeah. And she has a cookbook of her own American girl cookbook. And you know, like she can go make dinner sometimes. It's crazy. Um, but how can we kind of make it easier for parents and, and not make it this big, arduous task? Yeah. I mean, it can be because every time I, I'm considering like, oh, let me get the kids involved in a recipe. It's like, oh my God, what is my kitchen going to look like after this? And right. you, know, you get a little overwhelmed. So I think the most important thing is like you said, you know, the expectations, you have to keep them in check. Like it's not going to be perfect. The recipe might not come out exactly like you had anticipated. It's going to be a little bit messy. So, you know, always try it. From my perspective, I like to use easy recipes that my kids can, you know, help just measure portions and add to, and then I can do kind of the more advanced part. 
Or it could be something like they're helping wash the vegetables and then I'll cut them or they're using the salad spinner to spin the lettuce leaves. You know, little things. So depending on the age of your child, I would look at what part of the recipe is an appropriate task. So a child that could pour or could measure something, one child, a younger child could mix or could help you know, wash or pretend to wash a vegetable depending on their age. So I think it's important to look at the recipe ahead of time and just figure out what steps are really appropriate for your child's age and ability, and then let them be part of that. And you do the other steps with them, watching and assisting. But if you can do that ahead of time versus just everybody's in the kitchen at once and it's kind of chaos, it takes a little bit of the pressure off. And generally the recipe comes out a little bit closer to what you were hoping for <laughs> Yeah, those are great tips. I love that. There's always something for a kid to do depending on their age. So family meals, you talked about this before and you said that it, it is really important. And, and, you know, during the pandemic, I think we all found ourselves eating more family meals, whether that was dinner or not, but we all were gathering around the table a lot more. And so what does research show about the benefits of family meals and how it can help kids become healthy eaters? Yeah, I mean, so there's a lot of research on family meals. And one of the biggest things is that kids who eat with a family tend to be a little bit less picky. And I think that comes down to seeing mom and dad, you know, model more foods. I think there's more food availability. I mean, if you think about sitting at a table versus sitting at a couch eating, there's certain foods you can't, you can't bring soup to the couch. You can't bring salad to the couch, you know, like, so those foods are kind of off limits where a slice of pizza, sure, that's easy on the couch. Um, So I think some of the food choices are going to be different too. But it's also a lot about the mindfulness and really being in tune with your hunger and satiety cues. And children are young and they might not even realize that they're doing this. But when you sit down at a table, you're eating with others, you're eating more slowly, you're paying attention to the food. That has a direct impact on the portions as well. And that could be why you know, the research on family meals does show that kids who tend to eat with the family at the table have you know improved body weight, they have improved overall health, uh, even lower risk of depression. Um, there's been some studies that show there's a lower risk of those kids getting into things like drug use when they're older. So you know, I think there's a lot of benefits outside of just nutrition because it's time with the family, it's time to get to know your kids and see what's going on with them. But from a nutrition perspective, I think it's just the healthier, the more nutritious foods, because all foods can fit into your diet and there's nothing wrong with the pizza nights and things like that. But I think when you look at the vast majority of people that are eating away from the table, they're probably having less things like fruits and vegetables and whole grains on the plate and more of the quicker, easier foods like the slice of pizza. Right. Yeah. It's so important. And, and, you know, I think now there's a big challenge because we're all returning to quote, you know, quote unquote, normal, uh, daily life. And, you know, I was telling my sister-in-law yesterday because my nephews are in sports and, and my youngest one played softball this season and, it was really, you know, I love that she did it because it's so important for her and she loved it, but it was kind of difficult to have family dinners because practice or a game would start at 545. So they'd come home. I'd have to get dinner in them really quickly because we're not going to eat at 730, eight o'clock at night. Um, and so we were talking about like, what do you do? And, and she would say, she told me yesterday that sometimes she'll have to bring dinner to the field. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are your tips for kind of making sure that you carve out that time for family dinner when you've got sports and extracurriculars and appointments and everything else you have? 
Oh, yeah. It, it's crazy. And I mean, I, I'm seeing it now too. My oldest was in, um, this is the first year he did baseball. My little guy, we, they actually offered four-year-old t-ball this year. So I signed them both up and then I was regretting that decision after because <laughs> of the schedules. Um, so a couple things you can do. Um, one of the things is, especially when practices are really overlapping family mealtime. So like that 5.30 to 6.30 window, you don't necessarily want to come home at 7.30, 8 o'clock at night and eat a large meal. So what I've found, if you can do it, is have almost like a family, basically make the meal earlier or meal prep it in advance and have a small portion of it before you leave for the practice and the rest of it when you come home. So it's almost like dividing that meal into two larger snacks, but you could at least at one of those two times sit down as a family and enjoy that meal. So you're still having that dinner food and you're still having that meal that you wanted to have and maybe that more balanced meal, but it works within that busier schedule too. That's a great idea. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cause I mean, you know, at seven thirty at night, eight o'clock, it's bath time, bedtime, yeah. you know, let's, let's be done. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I don't feel like making a meal at that time too. And uh, to be honest, I mean, I think especially depending on the age of your child too, they get hungry. And so if you do try to delay the meal time, eat, probably they've just eaten three or four snacks leading up to it. And then they're not going to be really hungry for that meal time anyway. So if you can push it earlier, if that works or just make it kind of into two different meals, like kind of large snacks that tends to work. And I would say, you know, the busier we are, whether it's sports or appointments or whatnot, the more you can kind of meal prep one day a week, some of those parts of the meal. And then I like to call it just meal assembly on those busy nights. Like, um, you know, we might make egg muffins in advance and we just pair those egg muffins with a side of vegetables and fruit that were already prepped. I mean, super easy. You can kind of grab it and go meals, but if it's prepped ahead of time, then you're not trying to do all this legwork while you're trying to run out the door too. Yeah, that is so important. So let's talk about devices at the table. So I have extended family members who like to have the TV on during dinner. And I it's my biggest pet peeve. I cannot stand the noise. I don't know if it's like a sensory thing, but I just need quiet. I want to have conversation, you know, and and in our own family, we have someone who uh, <laughs> who likes to have his his phone at the table is checking email and it's like, come on, just, you know, let's just enjoy our family meal together. And so what do you think about this? Because I think it's a common struggle for most families with devices, uh, um, you know, at the table. Oh, totally. And we have the same struggle in my house. I know, um, you know, I'm not going to call them out, but the other adult member of my household is <laughs> to the TV at dinner. So, um, yeah, so to me, it's the same thing. Like it's, it's very hard to have the TV on and have everybody focusing on the TV and, and be eating mindfully. And this is really, it's not about necessarily what you're eating, but how you're eating it. And if you're staring at a show and you're paying attention to that, you're not really paying attention to the food that's going in and you're not paying attention to those hunger and satiety cues. And so what starts to happen is you're just eating to clean your plate. You're eating because the food is there and you're not really listening to your body. And over time, you start to get away from being in tune with your body and understanding when you're slightly hungry and when you're satisfied. And this is what can lead to that mindless eating that can lead to health problems later on. So if you do have a family member that you know loves the idea of TV at dinner or devices, you could set up a schedule where maybe there's one night a week, like Friday night, sometimes we'll do Friday night pizza and the TV will be on and fine. You know, it's a one night a week thing, but you don't want it to be every single meal or every single dinner that these devices are on because it takes away from the whole point of family time where you want to sit around the table and, and see how their day was, you know, if everybody's watching a show, it's hard to do that. That's great. I love that. So when I was growing up as a kid, you know, in the eighties, we had, um, like TV dinner stands, we had like snack tables. Right. And I, I'm pretty sure that as a kid, we ate in front of the TV 
quite often. And, you know, I don't know, it's always sort of stuck with me. Like I didn't like that at all. Um, and so, like I said, I, I like to be at the table with my kids now, but there was a recent survey that was done and it found that only 48% of people eat at their dinner table and the couch and get this, the bedroom <laughs> were the primary places they, they eat. And that just blew my mind. Right. And so, you know, as we return to regular lives, our regular, you know, daily lives, I bet that many kids are running or eating on the run and in the car. And, and I had to do that once I had to feed my kids in the car. I know I, I sound like the anomaly here, but, um, I didn't like it. I, it just felt like this does not feel right to me. And so why would you say that really eating at a table, whether it's, you know, out in your backyard on the patio or, or in your, in your dining room is really important. Yeah. You know, again, it comes down to like, it's the ease of the food too. So I think if you consider what food could you eat in your bed or on your lap versus what can you actually eat at a table, there's definitely different food choices because a lot of foods you can't hold on your lap and eat. You know, So I think you're limited when it comes to the variety of food choices. And also generally, if you're going to be sitting on a couch, you're going to be in the bedroom or on the run you're not going to be eating mindfully, right? You're probably rushing through the meal or you're watching TV at the same time. So I think a lot of that goes into play. Um, I've had to, in the past, again, depending on schedules and appointments and whatnot, driving my kids, like picking them up from daycare and going to an appointment or a sport. And you do have to eat somewhere on the way. So one of the things that worked was I packed their little lunches in those bento boxes, which are great because they can compartmentalize and they don't leak. So if you have to hold it kind of on your lap, you can do it. But we parked, we sat in the car and almost had like our little picnic in the car mm. um, or you could bring a blanket and sit outside and do that. It's silly. I, I prefer to eat at the table, but trying to make it work. Um, so I, I would still try no matter where you're going, if you can either leave 10 minutes earlier or whatnot, so you can still allow a more, not a rushed mealtime. I think that's part of it too, is mm -hmm. you just want to be able to eat at your own leisure and not feel like you have to scarf the food down as you've run out the door. Cause then you're not really even noticing what you're eating and you're not listening to those satiety signals. Yeah, that's great. That's a great, I love that idea that you talked about. Um, I think sometimes it is just unavoidable. You don't know how or when you're going to eat. Um, that's great. So let's talk about portion sizes. So I want to get your take on this because I think that maybe I go a little bit overboard with my kids they're you know, <laughs> too young and, you know, they eat large portions and I'm always trying to teach them, you know, here we have measuring bowls or measuring cups and I'll say, you know, that's a portion. Like you can't, you can't like, sometimes you can, right? Sometimes we want to eat double portion or whatever, but I'm trying to get them to realize that they can't have like a cup of raisins, for example. And so do you think this is a good idea or could it lead to disordered eating? So I really think it, it depends on how you go about it, right? So uh, children at different ages are going to be able to understand a little bit differently when it comes to nutrition in their body. Um, when it comes to portion size, for younger children who don't really grasp the concept of portion size, I think it's important that we as adults make sure we're not serving them adult-sized portions because they don't require as much because they have much smaller bodies. So that's where it's really beneficial to use more kid-sized plates and bowls and cups so that they do have this smaller portion, but it doesn't look lost on a big plate where they feel like they should have more. Um, as a child gets a little older, I think it's totally fine to mention, you know, let's say for an instance for raisins. Okay, a serving of raisins in a palm of our hand is the same as eating a whole cup of grapes. So if you're eating a cup of raisins, that's like eating four cups of grapes. Do you think, you know, and, and just kind of putting it into their lingo, like, would you normally? 
normally eat a cup of or four cups of grapes. Yeah, you'd probably have a cup. So let's start with this amount of raisins. And the way I usually approach it with my clients and my my kids is I always give them the portion size in my mind, which is, you know, the portion we would start with. And I don't necessarily call it out as a portion, but that's what I'll serve them as one portion. And then if they're still hungry or they want more, I try to, you know, say, okay, like let's listen to our body for a little bit and see if we still really want it. Because if they ate the food in five minutes and they're asking more, they probably really haven't had time yet to see if they're truly satisfied. So maybe drink a little water, we could have a conversation. And then if they're still hungry, then sure, we can go back and have a little bit more. But it's not so much about restricting portions, more about getting them to listen to their body to really see if they do need more or is it just, oh, I like the taste, I ate it fast and I want more because it's there. Okay. Yeah, that's great advice. So let's talk about the words that we use when we talk about food. I think parents, you know, often negotiate with their kids, like just take a bite, you <laughs> like it, or they bribe them, take a, take a bite of their broccoli and then you can have dessert or they use food as a reward. And so what do you think about this? Yeah, so this is where you want to be really careful, okay, because the just take a bite or bribing a child, like if you eat a bite of your broccoli, you can have chocolate cake. Think about the message that sends. You just told the child like broccoli is so disgusting that the only way you're going to eat it is if I can reward you with this delicious piece of cake. So you just gave the cake all this power because you just said it's this amazing tasting food that everyone should want. And the broccoli is something gross that we have to like, you know, beg people to eat. So when we send these messages, I get where we, why we say it. You know, I've caught myself wanting to say this too, because it's this desperation. You just want them to try it. But what's happening is we're giving some foods this reputation that they're gross and some foods a reputation that they're great and something we should desire. So this is what sets up those picky eating habits because children then in their mind, they're smart. And now they're saying, oh, well, that I, I haven't tried it yet, but it's probably going to taste bad. And oh, this is going to taste good. So it's better to, and the way I like to serve things like desserts and whatnot is all foods kind of are the same. So we don't have necessarily dessert time after dinner. We have it with dinner. It's all there. So you could choose to have a bite of the cake and then go back and have a bite of your chicken or your broccoli or whatever else is there. But that way it's all part of the meal and no no one food is kind of the reward or having more power than the other. Dr. Dina Rose in her book, It's Not About the Broccoli, she calls it the dessert deal. And, you know, when parents say no dinner, no dessert, and she says the kids should have dessert whether they eat dinner or not. And she also says that maybe rethink dessert. So maybe dessert is a yogurt or a muffin. Mm -hmm. Um, so I love that. That's great. So what about labeling foods as healthy or unhealthy, good or bad? I, I find like I don't even realize I'm saying it, but my kids will often say, oh, that's not healthy, right, mommy? Or is dairy healthy? And I, I realize, wow, maybe I'm talking too much about, you know, nutrition. And so do you think we should be kind of calling attention to things like this or, or avoiding that altogether? Yeah, so I think there's nothing wrong with letting kids know what foods do and that some foods do more good things than others. But I try not to use the labels healthy and unhealthy or good or bad. And, and trust me, I mean, I get we're in this space. So it's like we're just used to saying those words and it happens. But I think when we talk to them more in kid terms, like, for instance, um, if they ask, you know, oh, is a cookie healthy? You could say, well, you know what? A cookie gives us energy because it has sugar in it and sugar gives us energy. But if we were to have the apple, not only does it give us the energy, but it also gives us things that help our our body um, fight against, depending on the child's age, like inflammation, or it helps our, you know, eyes stay healthy. If we're talking about a carrot, like we can talk about the body part and maybe the, the benefits it offers without kind of call, calling out another food or saying another food isn't a good choice. It's just more highlighting the benefits those foods offer and how some maybe just provide energy 
but others provide more benefits and we want to eat more of the foods that do all these amazing things in our body more often. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So let's talk a little bit about nutrition and we don't want to go crazy overcomplicating it for parents, but what are some kind of basic tips of, of what they should focus on, the foods they should focus on and, and the habits they should focus on for their kids? Yeah. I mean, I think if you want to simplify it as much as possible, the biggest thing that most kids get too much of, and we all can benefit from doing less of is added sugars in the diet. I mean, you think about where they come from, added sugars are coming from sugary beverages. They're coming from processed foods, a lot of snack foods and dessert type foods. And there's nothing wrong with having some added sugar, but you don't want it to exceed more than 10% of the daily calories. So you don't have to count calories and count grams of sugar. But what I would strongly recommend is for parents, when they look at their child's diet and look at all the things they're eating in a day that have added sugar in them, start with as simple as one swap. You know, maybe you swap out one granola bar that has added sugar a day to a homemade muffin you make or a homemade granola bar you make that doesn't have the added sugar or a piece of fruit or another granola bar that has less sugar, like just kind of taking it step by step. But to me, the most important thing is if we work on reducing the added sugar, when we're replacing it with foods that don't have the added sugar, naturally those foods are more nutrient dense. We're getting more of the things like the antioxidants and the fiber that we want to get more of in the diet anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, we're in the midst of summer now and our kids are are naturally drinking more and I'd say that there's a lot of beverages that are high in added sugars. And so how can we kind of minimize that limit it and get our kids to drink more water? Yeah. So I think you have to look at two, you know, it depends what the child's already doing. So if they're already doing a lot of sugary beverages, it's going to be hard to just say, we're going to stop and go to water. But first step is you could water them down so they get used to a slightly less sweet taste. You could look at, um, for a child that loves a lot of soda, one of the easiest swaps is get some sparkling water and use 100% fruit juice and just sweeten it with a little bit of juice. So it has this natural sweetness, it has the carbonation, but you're converting them over away from the added sugars to more naturally occurring sugars and the juice has nutrients as well. Um, You know, the, the recommendations are to have mostly water or plain milk or a bit of 100% fruit juice. Those are kind of the ideal beverages when we talk about what kids should drink, but you have to look at what they're already drinking. And if there's a lot of sugary beverages, I would start by just trying to cut down, maybe it's by one cup, eight ounces a day, you know, get used to that and slowly transitioning away from those sugar sweetened beverages to ones that are either sweetened hundred percent naturally with a little bit of juice or something like the sparkling water, the plain milk and the plain water. Yes. Sugar is so insidious. I mean, it's in so many different foods that you wouldn't even realize Mm -hmm. like yogurt and dressings and sauces. It's incredible. It really is. It's it's frustrating too. And people just get overwhelmed, but that's where you can't, you can't avoid it altogether. I think it's an unreasonable goal, especially when we're talking about kids, but just, you know, look at ways that you can scale back. And when you scale back a bit more, it's just, everybody's better off. Okay, great. So we're going to head to another break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about sneaking vegetables. Hey friends, if you've got kids, you've got picky eaters. And as a mom of two, I totally get it. There are foods my kids flat out refuse to eat or foods they love one day and the next, not so much. Still through the years, I've learned the secrets to raising healthy, adventurous eaters. And I want to share what I've learned with you in my free video course, Turn Your Picky Eaters Into Little Foodies. In this course, you'll learn some of the most effective ways to get your kids to eat their vegetables, try new foods, and how you can put an end to picky eating for good. To sign up, all you have to do is go to juliereveillant.com and click on freebies. 
so in our last segment, we were talking about how to avoid or limit added sugars in our kids' diet. And so I think another healthy habit is avoiding sneaking vegetables. And there's so many blogs and there's a popular book that has a ton of <laughs> recipes of how to sneak vegetables, puree them, add them to everything. And so I have no problem with pureeing vegetables, especially if it's, you know, we're making green smoothies or adding nutrition to maybe a sauce or a stew or a soup or something like that. But I don't agree with sneaking vegetables when the sole purpose is to hide it from your kids, because then they're just never learning what, <laughs> you know, broccoli tastes like or what a certain vegetable looks like. And so what do you think about that? Oh, I 100% agree with you. I mean, when we talk about like the whole goal of somebody wanting to sneak vegetables into their child's diet is they want their kid to eat more vegetables, but that's not the right way to go about doing it because if the child doesn't know they're eating it, it doesn't count as that exposure. So, you know, if you want to add more nutrients overall to anyone's diet, and as you mentioned, put them in a sauce or smoothie, that's fine, but be honest about it and talk about it. Um, I make these vegetable muffins with my kids. We make them, they're green muffins, and then we decorate them so they look like Ninja Turtles. So my kids, are, they're so really cute. Good. Oh, they're a lot of fun. Um, but so they have spinach, they have carrots, like all these vegetables go into them. And so I don't sneak them in, they help me make them. So they're physically picking up the spinach and the carrots and putting it in. And there's no, there's no hiddenness about it. When they eat it, it still tastes like a muffin and it's green. So it's not exactly the same taste as eating carrots or spinach alone, but at least it's an exposure because they helped in the preparation. They saw the vegetable and they know it's in the food. And so that's where I would look at is if you're somebody who's having a hard time getting your kids to eat more vegetables and you want them to accept them, maybe in a different form as you slowly increase their palate to eating the vegetable and it's alone form, um, just involve them in it. Don't hide it and say, you know, oh, you don't know what's in the sauce. Like let them see you put the vegetable in and see that it tastes good. And that's actually going to be a better way to get them to accept that vegetable on its own eventually. That's great. So raising a healthy eater, it's all about balance, right? So although we don't want to have food rules for our kids, we, we do want to balance processed foods and treats with real whole foods. And so how can we do that? Yeah. You know, I think when you're talking about feeding your kids, it's very similar to how we'd feed our, uh, ourselves. I kind of like that principle of the 80-20 rule, right? If 80% of the time you're eating more nutritious options, 20% of the time can be foods that are maybe a little bit more indulgent or have the added sugars, and it's really not going to have a major impact on health. You don't have to count this out and count macros and all this and drive yourself crazy as a parent, but basically thinking about throughout the day, you know, if I know about every time I'm serving my child a meal, 75% of it is pretty healthy. And then maybe there's a little bit of an indulgence here, or, you know, three quarters of the plate is filled with this. And I put a little chocolate chip on the plate to make them happy or something like that. At least we know we're balancing out those indulgence with more real foods. And that's what I think it comes down to is it, there's going to be parties, there's going to be ice cream parties and pizza parties and cakes and things like that. It's totally fine because if we restricted it and never gave those things to our child, What's happening is, again, we're telling our kids there's something wrong with those foods. There's something, um, you know, we shouldn't have them too often. And anytime we have that whole idea of keeping things away from us and restricting them, it makes us want them more and it can backfire. So I think they should be part of the diet. I think it's just important that we're making sure we're, we're having enough of the other foods on the plate to round it out so that it's not the only thing they're eating. Okay, great. So I've been hearing about food chaining. What is this and do we need to know about it? Yeah, so if you have a picky eater, uh, food chaining is really helpful because basically what it's doing is it's taking a food that your child already eats and accepts and slowly by adjusting the form of that food, getting them to eat the ideal food you want them to try. So uh, for instance, let's say we want our child to eat 
a grilled chicken breast, but they will not do anything except the chicken nugget. So food chaining would be you take the fast food chicken nugget that they eat. And then the next step would be they eat a frozen chicken nugget from the store. So it's a little different than the fast food one, but they're accepting it because it's just a little bit different. Once they start eating that, then you can make a homemade chicken tender where you're taking a chicken breast and breading it and baking it. Once they've accepted that, now you can try the grilled chicken breast without the breading. So it's basically like little tiny steps forward to getting them to eat that, that, the ideal food at the end, but just doing it very slowly in phases. That's great. And so the idea is that eventually they will accept what you want them to eat, right? (laughs) That's the hope. Yes. (laughs) That's great. I love that. So we hear a lot about mindful eating and intuitive eating, and, and I definitely subscribe to intuitive eating. I'm not good about following it for sure, but I, when I did do it, it, it was very beneficial for me. So should we be teaching these to our kids? And, and if so, what are some easy ways? Yeah, you know, I think one of the best things to do is just if you yourself are being more mindful about eating and you're reflecting those behaviors to your child and making sure they're eating in a relaxed environment and kind of being in tune with their bodies, it's going to help them be more mindful across the board. And so, you know, to not complicate it, when they sit down, you again, you want to sit for mealtime. You want to encourage your child to put your food on a plate, not pick up their food and walk around with it. And little kids, sometimes they want to do that. They kind of move away from the table. They take their food with them. So just encourage if they want to get up from the table, that's fine. But the food stays at the table. It stays on the plate. We chew each food, if, you know, try to chew it five to 10 times before you swallow and have conversations with them like, oh, what does your dinner taste like? Do you notice a texture? Is it crunchy? Is it soft? You know, having these conversations to pull all the senses in so our children are more aware of what they're eating. They tend to eat more slowly. They tend to be uh, more in tune with what they're eating and then they feel more satisfied. And just like with adults, it's a process. It's not something that happens overnight, but the more we work on it and we make it a habit, the more we're going to eat mindfully across the board. Yeah, definitely. And and during COVID, you know, a lot of uh, most of us, I'd say we're, we're emotionally eaters, <laughs> emotional eaters. And I think that our kids being home on distance learning, older kids, um, and just you know, not being in sports and not seeing friends, they turned to food when they were bored or or just to cope with anxiety and stress. And so now as we, you know, I guess come out of the pandemic, how do we break these, these unhealthy cycles? Yeah, I I totally agree with you. I think with everybody being in the home, um, there wasn't really as much of a schedule and food was always accessible. So I know in our house, it felt like 24 hour snack time. It was every time I turned around, somebody wanted a snack again. So I I think it's going back to the basics and just setting up some clear cut guidelines like this is mealtime, this is snack time. Um, If you, you know, make sure you're eating lunch. If not, if you're hungry in between, we're not having snack until this time. And in between, you could tell them, hey, the kitchen's closed right now. Or maybe there's a snack option that's always available. Like you can always go grab a fruit or vegetable, but we're only going to eat, you know, X, Y, and Z at mealtime or snack time. Just getting back on a bit of a schedule. Um, That for younger kids seems to help a lot. Also for older kids, you could talk to them. Um, Sometimes even with my clients for teenagers, we'll use hunger scales. So when they're in the mood for a snack, it's just saying like, hey, Ask yourself first, what's your what's your body actually telling you? Are you really feeling hungry? Is your stomach rumbling? Or is it just more of a, there's the food, I want to eat it. And after you're eating, how do you feel? Do you feel satisfied or do you feel stuffed? And not that there's anything wrong with either one, but the more that they start to get in tune with when they truly feel hunger and they know what that feels like, or when they feel too full, they start to then be able to regulate a bit more and get away from this mindless eating just because the food's there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So what are some of your favorite habits that that parents can use to encourage healthy eating? 
Yeah, I mean, one really fun activity, if you have space for it, um, we did this over uh, when everyone was home with COVID, we bought a little tiny planter just to put out on the deck and made a tiny garden. We don't have, um, we have a yard for a garden, but we also have deer, which will just eat everything. So it was a little tiny planter up on the deck. Um, but planting some, we planted some peppers and some green beans and some strawberries and getting the kids involved in that, just seeing like everything from planting a seed to taking care of it and watching it grow, got them so excited to learn more about plants and fruits and vegetables and to to pick them and clean them and incorporate them into recipes. So if you have an opportunity like that, whether it's a garden or community garden that you can participate in, or even a farmer's market where you can go and even speak to the farmer and learn about how the crops are grown, those are some really great educational activities. But at the same time, it's encouraging uh, more of those healthy eating habits and being excited about learning about new healthy foods. Yeah, that's great. I find that with my kids, I have one, my older one, she always, when it's snack time, she always heads to the pantry mm-hmm. and then the other one always heads to the refrigerator. <laughs> <laughs> but I do find that, you know, when, and, and I think studies back this up that when food is seen, when it's accessible, when it's easily visible. So, you know, cutting up fruit and putting it in clear glass containers in the refrigerator, they're so much more likely to make that healthy choice. Totally. And that's why I try to look at even like in the pantry or the refrigerator, when you open it, you know, think about what's at eye level and your eye level is different than your child's eye level. So I try to make sure like the snacks that I want them to remember that are in there that I want them to eat are more at their eye level. So when they open it, they see that because if the first thing they see is the box of cookies, like, of course, I would want that too. That's the first thing I see. So the food you want your family to eat more of, the more you can, like you said, put them in glass bowls on the counter, put them at eye level in the pantry. Um, That's going to encourage all of us to eat more of them too. Yeah, that's a great idea. I often, when we have you know, if, we, if I buy something on the junk food side, I'll often hide it all the way at the top of the pantry so that no one can see it. And, you know, and then they, then they forget about it. They forget that we even have it. So <laughs> I do the exact same thing. Yeah. And it's nice. Like three months from now, but like, oh yeah, we still have Girl Scout cookies. Great. <laughs> so this is something that I'm starting new on food issues. Um, I want to know who you think we should interview on food issues. Yes. So there's so, so many great people you can interview. I think on this topic, especially talking about feeding your family and picky eaters and whatnot, um, Jennifer Anderson, if you're not familiar with her, she's a dietitian that runs Kids Eat in Color. Um, She has an amazing following on Instagram, over a million followers, and just incredible tips for feeding picky eaters, introducing new foods to families, and even eating um, on a budget. So I think she's phenomenal. It would be a great interview source. And um, in the pediatric nutrition space too, a dietitian, Jill Castle, also is phenomenal. She has published many books on uh, feeding children. I think both of them are great um, for this topic and space. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And where can listeners go to learn more about you, Erin, and your work? Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I would love for them to come on over to my website. It's erinpolinski.com. Um, and, you know, I have, my whole website is kind of focused on healthy mom, happy families. So helping busy moms make time for their health, even when they feel like they have no time for themselves with their family. Um, so lots of recipes and tips and tricks over there. Great. Well, Erin, thank you so much for your time today. You gave us so much great information. I really appreciate you coming on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. I really enjoyed that interview with Erin Polanski-Wade. She's so passionate and positive, and I love her easy, simple approach to feeding kids. I hope you walked away with some really practical tips. 
Make sure you subscribe so you won't miss any of the episodes. If you're already subscribed and you enjoyed today's episode, I'd love it if you could take a second, go into Apple Podcasts and leave a review and a rating so we can reach more people. I'm Julie Revelant, and thank you for listening to Food Issues. You can connect with me on julierevelant.com and on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. 